Yes, hello. It's Jason Louve. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. My guest today, I've wanted to talk to for a long time. He's one of those hidden masters who you should definitely be aware of. His name is Jeff Hoke, H O K E. And he created something called the Museum of Lost Wonder, which I first came across when it was a series of zines in the Bay Area in the early 2000s. You can now get it as a book called The Museum of Lost Wonder from Wiser. It's on Amazon. And where do I even begin describing this phenomenal artifact? It's a lot more than a book. It's kind of like an alchemical pop-up book that is also a museum, like a guided museum tour into the history of, of Western esotericism and alchemy and your own inner mind. It's full of projects you can do, puzzles and optical illusions and pop-ups, and you can spend hours getting lost in this thing. It is just incredible and one of the coolest, certainly one of the coolest books on the Western tradition I've ever seen. And it is criminal that more people don't know about this because it's been out for a long time now and people should definitely be aware of it and get a copy of it for God's sake. It's so cool. You can leave it on a coffee table and all of your uh, your friends and relatives who want to know what this crazy stuff you're into is, you can show them this and they'll just become fascinated with it and be lost in wonder like a little kid and they'll get it. All right. So Jeff and I spoke about all kinds of amazing stuff in this podcast. We talked about the alchemical tradition. We talked about Tibetan Buddhism, uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, all kinds of incredible stuff. And you're really, really going to dig it. And of course, magic.me, my online school for magic, meditation, and mysticism will give you all of the tools and techniques to actually participate in the Western tradition for enlightenment and personal growth, and the Eastern ones for that matter. We have everything there, astral projection, hermeticism, chaos magic, and our brand new course, Mastering Meditation, which is, in my ever so humble opinion, the greatest course on meditation on the planet, at least on the internet part of the planet. Check it out. Magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. There's a whole university of techniques for you to learn right there after you explore the Museum of Lost Wonder with Jeff Hoke. So with no further ado, here he is. So, Jeff, I have here the original issues of Guide to Lost Wonder. Oh, you don't? I do. And, wow. And, the, and the, uh, the full book as well, as I've been a fan for a long time. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, I, I bought all these, I think. I may have bought them from you. I can't remember because it was a long time ago now. But I bought these at the San Diego Comic Convention. Oh, really? A long time ago. So if, if you were manning the booth, I probably bought them from you. Oh, then we've met. Oh, how amazing. Yeah, but that I, was at an ape, Alternative Press Expo. Or later, uh, yeah, I think San Francisco got its own sort of Comic-Con. Maybe it was then, because I, I did go to Ape in San Francisco like 2002 or so. So maybe it was then. I don't know. But um, I, 
I have loved your work for a long time, and it's mysterious and wonderful and and alchemical and occult in the truest in the truest sense. And I've wanted to talk to you about it for a long time. And so I guess maybe just to start off, if you want to tell tell people who you are, what what the Museum of Lost Wonder is, and and how you came to work on this. Okay. Um... I've worked in museums uh, for 30, 35 years. And uh, formerly, I was an art student. Uh, I got a degree in fine arts and won an education. Uh, and after working in the museum biz for so long, I, I hadn't done much artwork and I had to put the two of them together. It kind of made sense because museums were all I knew. So I, I took. Uh, I took my creative life and professional life and put them together and made this uh, fantasy museum so I could, you know, put anything I wanted to because museums are great. I could do music if I wanted to. You know, I could make sculpture, I could paint, I could draw, I could write. So it became a home to my creativity. And I started doing it with these, you know, very simple uh, little, what, 16 page scenes in each chapter and I wanted them to be uh, like activity booklets for kids that you might get from a museum, but of course they were for adults. It was sort of a tongue in cheek thing, but also to reemphasize, you know, to have a sense of child childlike wonder. So, you know, I st museums were mostly about, you know, trying to push some academic or scientific agenda Onto mm. the people, you know, they want to sell science. Um, but I wanted to do something about, you know, the people, something for the reader. So I started out with basic human questions. So I mined uh, basic philosophical questions like, who am I? Where am I going? How did everything begin? Um, where do I go from here? And in each zine, I addressed each little magazine. Um, I address these by uh, posting what science would say about the question and then uh, what myth or esotericism would say about it. And so that was a lot of fun. And I could draw pictures to illustrate these examples. So that's what I did. I started out after about the first six scenes um, under the heading of the Museum of Lost Wonder, I realized I had to flush that out and show people the museum. So I, I did a three, four issue series where I sort of made a cartoon tour where I had this little kid take people through the museum so they could see it. And I named um, the halls after alchemical processes. What was it about alchemy that inspired you to so much? I mean, there's so much alchemical and kind of medieval symbolism in these books. What was it about alchemy? Was it just the sense of wonder or was there something more about it that intrigued you? Well, I was I was really afraid to use alchemy as this organizing thing for the museum because, you know, because of its reputation. It's just not, it doesn't have any respect. Yes. And it's seen as a lot of foolishness for a long time. But, um, and I still think that, but that was until I read... Um, a Jungian book on alchemy, where it talks about it as a sort of psychological, um, spiritual 
process that leads to what Jung called integration, which is putting the conscious and subconscious minds together to create a sense of wholeness. And this suddenly made a lot of sense and it, it, it made it a very rich area. So that's how I approach it. Um, the physical side is interesting too, because it has so many metaphorical associations with the psychological spiritual side um, that they reinforce each other. And of course, you know, the more physical you can make an experience, um, the more memorable it is and the more meaningful it is. That's why in all my zines, I always had a, a paper model and the model sort of epitomized um, the content in each one so that it, it could become this, the idea could become a physical experience. That's so cool. Yeah. And I, one thing that, that always struck me about, you know, whether it's now considered silly or not, but, you know, kind of proto-science in the, you know, early Renaissance is that the disciplines were not separated yet. So it was this idea of science, myth, alchemy, magic, every, you know, literature, scripture, everything was tied up in one pursuit for knowledge. And there's something... Uh, even if it wasn't sophisticated by our standard, there's something so pure about that and that has been lost. There is there is a sense of lost wonder, I think, in the idea that everything is so siloed now and institutionalized and there is not one single just quest for, for truth out of curiosity. Well said. No, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. That's my favorite time period is around 1620, when you're right, uh, alchemy and science was just starting and alchemy was still early chemistry and they hadn't separated them. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, I used my same words. They were both uh, a path to knowledge by, um, you know, physical experimentation. Alchemy had that, too. Yeah, and that's so cool because that's like when you when you're interested in science as a kid, at least me, it was just like I, I feel like children somehow are like the purest science scientists in, in a way because they are engaging directly in doing experiments to see what reality is. Or when you get those little science kits when you're a kid, which your book definitely reminds me of, um, and you're just you just want to know so bad. So so, but of course, you know, people who become professional scientists kind of lose that lose that curiosity perhaps hopefully not but sometimes well some of them do some of them don't yeah it was that right it's that childlike wonder i wanted to capture in the book and keep that and in the website and and keep that keep it playful and keep it interesting and and make it uh, personally meaningful to people not just about trying to you know educate people on whatever agenda um, there is, but getting getting them involved, getting them involved in a sense of play for these, you know, very basic uh, philosophical ideas, which are very personal to everybody. What is it about that period? I mean, it's such a specific period, 1620. I, I think that was what the publication of the Rosicrucian Manifest is. Or, or, or maybe, maybe not. What, what was it about that period specifically that is is so interesting to you? Um, yeah, six, uh, so much happened around then. Um, one of the big last supporters of alchemy and early supporters of science, since they were both the same, was uh, 
King Ludwig of Bavaria, um, now, you know, Czechia, um, which was thought of as the sort of queen and, and heart of, of Europe. And it was this sort of uh, educational center um, for Europe at the time. And uh, Ludwig, if I'm getting his name right, anyway, he brought together alchemists, scientists, everyone to do this. Uh, he eventually gets in trouble with the church, of course. Church hates all this. He takes alchemy because the spiritual side competes with them and other, um, you know, Catholic nations uh, went to war against, well, the church got everyone together and went to war against uh, the king of Bavaria. And they lost at the Battle of White Mountain, um, which is right near Prague. Uh, and it was sort of the death of this sort of idealism from the era. Uh, and scientists, well, everyone, they scattered. And so, because of that, scientists also started to remove themselves from alchemy um, to escape prosecution from the church. So, and then amongst themselves, it be, they became their own sort of academic hierarchy, just like the church, and would weed themselves out by, you know, calling each other magical thinkers, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Just, it, it's, it's, it hasn't changed today. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that period of history is so fascinating to me. I, I I spent about four years working on a book about John Dee, and he oh, yeah. and and is obviously just a fascinating character and right there at the crossroads of magic and science. But he spent a lot of time in Prague and Bohemia during that time and may have may have inspired some of the, these movements. And that that cultural period has is just so fascinating in that it was this kind of brief. Um you know, cultural explosion of alternate thinkers and science and art and, you know, bohemianism in the true sense, because it was bohemia. And, and yeah, the king was, you know, well into magic himself, which I apparently didn't do him many favors uh, historically, but, but it, just a, what a beautiful and idealistic period of history. And yeah. I, I feel like, I don't know if you've been to Prague, but uh, yes, yeah, I, it was phenomenal, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, it is phenomenal. I went there. I I went to go visit, and I found that an alchemy museum was opening in uh, nearby Kutnahora, and um, I wanted to see it, but it wasn't open yet. So, anyway, I emailed the um, curator and asked him if he needed any help, which is my sneaky way of getting myself in to see what he had. So I spent a month there uh, helping him, you know, design and, and put up this, uh, it was the world's first alchemy museum at the time. We got wow, to work wow. with some of the academics who were studying this in Prague and uh, it was really marvelous. Um, but another thing, like you said earlier, was that in that time period, um, was the Rosicrucian manifestos came out, which really had a huge impact uh, across Europe and early scientists, because it was this call to action um, for people to, you know, uh, what? Call to action for science and to get people to join them, of course, in secret. And they're, you know, they're only... Um, duty they said was to heal the sick for free but it was this very egalitarian 
organization in secret that no one knows if it's real or not still. Um, but it really sort of uh, energized, um, you know, scientists from all over Europe who then started writing. They would publish things asking to join. You had to do it anonymously. So who knows if they were ever contacted. Um, but it really created a real stir and got um, Rene Descartes a part of it because after he was at the Battle of White Mountain in Prague and the sort of Prussian army or something, and after that battle, he, he sort of disappears. And, and then he, he shows up in Paris and people are, there's this whole Rosicrucian scare, this Rosicrucian furor in Paris where people are, they're seen as demonic and, you know, and, and bad. And they accuse Descartes of being a Rosicrucian. And he goes, well, I'm not invisible. You can see me, right? <laughs> yes. So yeah, there's, there's so many, you know, famous people and, you know, seminal uh, history in, in philosophy that goes on then and really changes oh, yeah. the thinking of the West. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's one. Of, it's one of my favorite stories ever. I, well, and one of my favorite books ever is the Rosicrucian Enlightenment by Francis Yates. Oh, mine too. It's such a great book, right? Yeah. Uh, that I want. I read that in my early twenties, and it completely. I, I just loved it so much. It changed my way of what was. It changed my thinking about what was possible in the current day because just this story of, if I remember, the Rosa, Rosicrucian manifestos were. They said that there were Rosicrucians working in secret all over Europe to bring a new age of enlightenment and science, but they were the invisible college. They were the invisibles. And the oh, only, right. way, and yeah. the, but and and you couldn't the you couldn't contact them except there the the only method was to take some, if I'm remembering correctly, take some radical action for science anonymously and enlightenment anonymously and credit it to the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. So this, oh, of course, huh. happened all over Europe all at the same time. So that the this myth made itself real overnight. There may have never been more Rosicrucians. Then a few people. It's possible that you know they were people in John D's circle, or possibly even John D himself. But it, 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 it that is, I see that as such a true act of magic. It just created itself out of nothing, and then led to modern science and the modern world. Yeah, and, and possibly John, America. You know. Yeah, John D is mentioned in the pamphlets, which is amazing. He is. Uh, I was not aware I, of that. I, I did a whole chapter in the book. Uh, no, in the next book, but one of my zines is called uh, the Tomb of Illumination. It's in the folios of my website. And I based that on um, Yates's um, book, The Rosicrucian Enlightenment. But I started it because I got so intrigued by the description of Christian Rosenkreutz's tomb in the first manifesto, which was so totally detailed. It even gave dimensions of the walls, all the geometry, what was on the walls, the ceiling, uh, there were chests in the walls, what was in the chests. Um, and then his tomb is in there. So I searched all over the internet and the libraries to, I said, I'm, this is so famous, I'm sure someone must have built it. I couldn't find anything. The only thing I could find anyone to recreate it was that the uh, Order of the Golden Dawn has yeah. sort of recreated a, a little Rosicrucian temple from that description out of uh, bed, painted bedsheets and a cardboard box for the, <laughs> for the coffin. Uh, and, you know, that was it. And I'm going, 
oh my God, uh, this is wrong. So I had to take my own advice and do it myself. So from there, I launched into uh, getting as much other peripheral information that historians had written, written but I made a, a model, a working model, paper model of uh, his tomb. And it's it's the most awesome. Uh, it's the most popular you know model I have on my website, and Rosicutions from around the world uh, you know buy it and ask about it. I even had people um, starting to recreate that tomb life size. Oh wow! From, from my model. Wow. Yeah, there's a couple of guys from England that said they wanted to build it in their backyard. And I don't know if they have, but there's a, uh, another guy who's recreating it. He's a Ros Rosicution with uh, plastic pipe and, and canvas, so it can be um, transported and put up and down in different temples. But uh, my paper model um, became a sort of activity for the lodge in Toronto, and they have that displayed uh in their lodge, the paper model. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been really fun. That's awesome. I, I have to check that out. That might maybe, maybe even something to create in, uh, on the, like in virtual reality or something like that. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Uh, well, I, I don't know how to do that, but I did take a class in flash before that died on the internet. A and if you go on the website, you have to go under the curio, uh, tab on the top um there's a section called folios and in there is is all the chapters for the next book and you'll see one of the two is the tomb of illumination but you can go and with that model and all the models you can go in and play with them i animated so you can interact with it oh so awesome you can, so you can open the tomb and take the chests out and open the chests and hear them and take uh christian out from his tomb and uh yeah and then put it all back together again so yeah that, that was a lot of fun that's but so I, cool there's about a half a dozen other models like that um one of them is the mysterium cosmographicum which was um a geometric model of the universe that was thought to be correct at the time but um yeah you can take that apart and put that together too. I gotta check that out. Let me ask you this: When you were in in Prague working on that museum, how did your perspective on any of this change? Did you did you have a sense of uh, a connection to something historical that had happened? Uh, a, a sense that there was still, you know, some a vibe continuing into the present? Did your perspective on you know, whether Christian Rosenkreutz was a real person or not change or the, or the, just the overall history. Um, no, not in believability, but it did reinstill, uh, you know, I work, you know, we're working with these academics and these people, um, that studied this stuff and just, it reinstilled this idea of how important, uh, alchemy was as a search for knowledge, you know, how important it is for Western history, because it works with all these uh, mythic symbols and things which are very still relevant today. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it gave it more credibility for me. What was it about alchemy that you think was so critical to, to history in that sense and so important? 
Well, it was the only uh, sort of chemistry and science uh, going back to Egypt. You know, so, I mean, experimentation and how you deal with raw materials and refining. And I mean, it just launched so many discoveries. Uh, I don't even know if it was always, well, it was alchemy, alchem, which comes from Egypt. Um, so yes, it's, it's so much a very important part of Western history and, and our culture and the beginnings of science and just knowledge because they didn't separate the physical from the metaphysical ever. I mean, that, that's, that was recent just after the, in the 1700s was that separated. Plus um, Egyptians didn't have the Catholic church to worry about. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you really had to worry about them back then. Um, do you feel I, I, I sometimes wonder if if we, we can really think about science now as still separated, though, um, because it seems much, much less less separate now than maybe it did 100 years ago. And I wonder if the that that separation was possibly just a phase. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, no, it, it's. I don't think it's a phase. I think science still has to be separate. I mean, if you're a scientist, you have to do the scientific method. Sure. Um, and, you know, do science according to that. But there are many, you know, scientists who are also very spiritual. Um, some of my favorite quotes are from ones from a physicist, uh, Fritjof Capra, who said, uh, science does not need mysticism and mysticism does not need science. But men and women need both. <laughs> I love that. And then That's Einstein great. has one. Um, yeah, says, Einstein was interested in alchemy, wasn't he? Oh, he was interested in everything. But, wow. but he quoted, uh, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's personal to the person. I think if you, you know, because i worked with academics all my life in museums and they have to their whole thing is publishing and gaining their credibility by being recognized by other scientists. So it's very competitive and they have to be very watchful um, for not being accused of magical thinking. So, right. you know, any of their spiritual leadings, I think, are, are taken off the table when they actually are involved with other academics. So in that way, I guess it it has to remain separate and always will be. But, um, you know, when you think of uh, how science begins as hypothesis, that's just, uh, that's a fantasy. That's a guess. That's something that comes out of the imagination. Um, hypotheses are from fantasies. Um, and, and it, but they need to be tested to be made real. Um, you think of Einstein's unified field theory, um, which was this theory, theory which hasn't been proven yet, but there's this mythic dream part of it that there, you know, everyone wants to find this overriding one law to explain everything, which is really sort of mythic and grand in its goal. And it's still very much a dream, but, you know, one that many scientists um, still chase. So, um, yeah, I think 
you know, myth and imagination are in the beginning are very much part of science. That's what inspires it. You know, that's how you know people want to know something. Um, you know, is something real? Are UFOs real? Are you know, are angels real? Whatever. Um, if you can come up, you know, as a scientist, you'd come up with a testing method um, to try and prove it. Sort of fantasizing and the, the imagination is is very important to science in the beginning. That's what spurs them on. Definitely. Um... Yeah, it just seems to me that, you know, there's only one curiosity. It's like, you know, there's just curiosity about how the universe works. It, that's what people have. And it's not compartmentalized. And the, the disciplines of pursuing that may be compartmentalized. But the impulse is the same. And I, I guess what I meant when I was talking about maybe science is a little bit more, um, it's not quite as distinct anymore. I, I see. I agree with you. Technically, yes, it is completely distinct. But we see interest in things like studying the nature of consciousness, of the brain, of um, the brain under meditation states, uh, and and certainly the interest of the public is very much in in both in both camps. And and I think the public sees science in kind of a mystic way. Uh. Yeah, it certainly is. There's a lot of math, which has always been mystical to me. <laughs> yeah, math yeah. for yeah. I mean, like John D. In the, in, uh, says, right. math is the is God's way of talking, and the only possible <laughs> way you can talk back. And I, I think that's it's like it's kind of an incontrovertible statement in a way. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's the yeah. only true thing we can actually hold on to. Yeah. Funny. Um, yeah. Well, well, let's talk about modern people. I mean, so alchemy outside of its historical context. Um, what is it what interest is it or what you know what can it offer modern people i mean you talked about jung and the idea of using alchemy as a metaphorical language for psychological individuation which i think if you hear people talking about it in any way that is taken seriously that that is or at least slightly taken seriously that tends to be the angle they're coming at it from but what I mean, what what do you think studying these symbols and systems of meaning offer modern people? Well, I think the uh, yeah the psychological and spiritual aspects of alchemy are are very relevant for people today. Um, like we were talking about, its richness in Western symbolism it makes it a great repository for um, mythic metaphors and symbols that resonate with the subconscious mind that wants they want to become conscious. And alchemy's association with the physical elements makes it uh, very grounding um, to our consciousness um, by giving them emotional connotations. Um, the first four stages are, are named after the elements, um, fire, water, air, uh, and earth. And in, in sequence, the first one is, is Calcinaccio fire. Uh, it's actually pronounced Calcinaccio, but I like to pronounce the English or English way. Um, and that's about inspiration and shedding light on things. Uh, the next one is water solucio, which seeks to bring a solution up from the depths of the subconscious. Um, and just that solucio is so close to solution um, it just shows you how embedded. Um, these alchemical ideas are in our culture and our language. Um, 
coagulations after that, and that's about earth, and that's about being grounded um, in the physical world. And then next is sublimatio, um, which is air, which it seeks to gain heights of the imagination to spur, spur us forward. Um, but, um, but all these physical methods, uh, also a mere uh, psychological one. Um, on my website, you can take, uh, I sort of go through this each one, you can take a tour of the museum and interact with it. And there's always two buttons on the bottom. One is like the chemical meaning of that alchemical process and then the psychological one. So you can see those two side by side. Very cool. So so what do you what do you think when we consider al the alchemical stages psychologically? I've never been totally clear about what that actually means psychologically. And the reason is probably because I've never actually read Jung's writing on that. So I, I probably should. But when we talk about these stages like, you know, calcinadio and things like this, um, purely from a psychological ang angle, what are we talking about? Are we, are we talking about like periods of somebody's life, of psychological stages they mature through, or is it something else in, in your opinion? Um, I, good question. I think you can relate it to a lot of things to, uh, you know, the situation you're in at the moment. Uh, I've never really read it being going through like stages of one's life, but it is a way of approaching different problems or things you want to seek. Um, just like sublimatio is going up in the air to, you know, if you're sort of lost in something, I uh, use this idea of sublimatio to sort of go up high and look down to get perspective on your life and yourself. Um, if also, if you're sort of, you know, sort of confused in things, uh, grounding yourself in calcinatio, just going outside, being with nature, um, grounding yourself in the physical experience, uh, is very helpful to quiet the mind. Um, so I think there are sort of different ways to use and sort of meditation exercises, you could say. These, these different aspects. Uh, Solutio is, you know, diving down to the subconscious, um, you know, going underwater, diving down to see uh, what answers are, you know, can bubble up to the surface, to your conscious mind. So there's just lots of great um, language and metaphors and symbols um, that I think are really helpful in using them to approach, uh, you know, problems and goals that you have and want. Yeah, that seems very straightforward. Um, yeah, I mean, I see that and I, it, it seems no different to me than, you know, Tibetan meditation mandalas or, or, or something like that. You know, those mandalas, a lot of them are actually floor plans to buildings. Are they floor plans for literal buildings to be built or metaphorical? They're sort of symbols for going into another realm, but, you know, going to that building in another realm. And then you go around and you meet, um, you know, beings in there uh, to get teachings from. And that's what you do when you meditate on when you met when you that's supposed to happen when you meditate on these uh, square mandalas is you visualize yourself going into the speed building in this other realm and then talk to the, you know, the beings in there.
to to learn from them. Oh, so, so it's I, like so, a... sorry to go off topic, but no, it was just, not at all. I, I always love that about Mandala. That's so know. cool. So it's like a kind of a map for a an inner an inner journey you you undertake. You're you're meant to kind of imagine yourself going in and meeting those beings. Yes. Yeah. Nice. It's like a single player role playing game. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds fun. I did not, I wasn't totally clear on that. No, that's really interesting though. And they actually have, you know, they built 3D mandalas. I got to see one in uh, Dharamsala when I was there. Um, some monks showed me, it was hidden away in a room. Um, but yeah, they actually built them in 3D. This one was like silver plated. It was in, I don't know, five feet tall. It was pretty amazing. And what were they doing with it? Were they kind of all uh, sitting around meditating on it or? Well, it was just in the storeroom. They would bring it out for special occasions when that particular mandala was needed, you know, for a certain ceremony. That's really so cool. It was just waiting. Yeah. What What brought you to Dharamsala and what was your experience there like? Well, I was always interested in Tibet since reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead in high school. Sure. You know, since it was referred to in so many album covers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was, you know, my state of literacy at that time. Um, so I was always fascinated. And finally, um, I decided I had to go. I had to go and, and search this out. So I actually uh, went to Tibet with my girlfriend and, and toured around there for a couple of weeks. And we were lucky because most, uh, most tours are done by the Chinese, of course. And you had a little Chinese girl, you know, talking about Tibet. She didn't know anything, but I, I, we were lucky because I got a Tibetan uh, guide and a, a driver who took us around and showed us sort of behind the scenes. Um, and I wanted to do something to help out. And he, he said to get in touch with his family in India because most Tibetans are, you know, well, when they left, when the Chinese invaded, uh, India gave them refuge and set up a number of camps. And the biggest one where the Dalai Lama is, is up in Dharamsala in the north. So I went to India a couple of times and, you know, traveled around with these Tibetans so I could, you know, really learn what it was like from, you know, a human point of view. And what was your take on it being there? I mean, um, Tibet is one of those things that people really it really put a lot of projections on and make into something in their mind because it's it's so ubiquitous in in literature and and comics and movies and things like that but what was it like when you actually got there versus maybe your expectations uh what what, what was the reality like for you um god it was very rich experience uh so many things um i mean it was going to these places uh going to the Patala and, you know, the major cathedrals and things and seeing how the devotion of the Tibetans uh, was really incredible. Um, but then, you know, being surrounded by, you know, Chinese guards and knowing that, you know, they killed, a, you know, a million of the people when they invaded. And there's, you know, I got shown the prisons where they put most Tibetans. My guide who had a dental problem was afraid to go to the hospital because they didn't treat Tibetans very well in there. Wow. Um, so that part was, yeah, that was really sad. You know, Tibetans now, they grow up with the same Chinese um, propaganda that the Chinese people get. And they don't know. 
when they leave and say go to Dharamsala and meet free Tibetans, they're totally astonished by the real history hmm. um, behind it. Oh, so you mean Tibetans, young Tibetans in in the occupied Tibet? Yeah. They do, wow. Okay. They don't know. I mean, it's wow. all. That's I so mean, it's, sad. It's, it's yeah. It's been since the fifties. Um, since it, so, it's been a long time, you know, for to be there. So there's not many old folks that remember the old ways. Although people are still well, when I was there, God, it was the eighties. So that's still a very long time ago. So it's changed so much since then. I, I brought a lot of brought a lot of pictures of the the Dalai Lama to people because that was a favorite thing hmm. to to give that to people when they they could, they could have that and it was dangerous for them to have it or to be shown me giving it to them but uh never got caught wow yeah I, obviously it's i think my and everyone's hope that the Tibetan um, um, tradition is able to maintain continuity in India and the U.S. as much as possible, but yeah, what a what a grim situation. I, for many years in Los Angeles, lived in the Armenian community, and there was this real sense of, you know, for for many for you know for 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 them, the Armenian genocide is still living memory. Yeah. Um, and they because they keep it in living memory. But the younger people who grow up in Los Angeles and social, you know, with social media and phones, it's like they don't really. There's this real concern that they don't really care. Some, at least, a lot of them, and that that's kind of being lost before the U.S. even has recognized that it even happened. So yeah, yeah that's a that's I I can only imagine a very very tough position to be in for any group of people. I think one thing I, after I got after hanging out with Tibetans and these people is is sort of the two aspects of of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, you know, on the outset, uh, it's you know it's not really a religion; it's a philosophy, right? It's it's not a series of beliefs; it's a series of practices for you to you know see for yourself what you do through meditation, etc., which takes a lot of serious study and and reading. And that's what monks are. They're academics. I mean, the, the literature, Tibetan literature is amazing. The books are amazing. But there's an outside of it, which for, you know, normal people who aren't academics, um, are not going to study Buddhism like that. It, it has all the trappings of Catholicism in a way. There's all these big scary sure. symbols. There's angels and demons, you know, scary stories. Uh, I, I asked my Tibetan friend, you know, about reincarnation, and and he said he was taught that uh, the chances of being reincarnated as a human is the chance that a turtle in the middle of the ocean has of, you know, coming up and poking his head through a hole in a board in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> we can only hope that's a teaching metaphor and not actually real. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it kind of sets, I was like, oh, my God, this is, you know, there's so many aspects to this here. Um, and, I, you know, I realized, God, I wasn't going to start learning Tibetan and reading Tibetan. And and I didn't dream in their symbols. Yeah. You know, I didn't my, I didn't grow up in a culture with their, their symbols. So, you know, they were meaningless to me. So that's when I started getting interested in Western esotericism because those it's part of our culture. Yeah, let's talk about this because this this question, right? What you just brought up, I mean, this is pretty much one of the central questions for me for my of my whole life. Um, I haven't been to Dharamsala, but 
I did go to Kathmandu twice and, yeah. and northern northeastern India and the rest of India. For some reason, I didn't go to Dharamsala, so I got to go back and go. I went up into the mountains in, in the Himalayas, but I need to go to Dharamsala. Um, but, you know, in Kathmandu, there's tons of Tibetans and you see they have like yeah. Swayambunath Temple and, you know, they have their schools there and you get the academic sense of it and you get how it's an almost military order. And I don't mean that obviously at all in a militant or violent sense, because they're the complete opposite, but just in how, how regimented and disciplined they are. Oh and, yeah. And, and you kind of look around at this and you think like, well, like, why don't we have this? And then, so I think that, you know, the great dream is then to come back and say like, well, what is the Western esoteric tradition? Is it something that could be comparable to this? Um, what would it be like if it was, you know, able to operate out in the open without, you know, I don't think we really have to worry about the Catholic church. I mean, at least not to the same extent anymore, but the thing about the Western tradition, obviously, is that it is a culted because it had to hide for so long to the point, like we were talking with Rosicrucian uh, manifestos, you, you kind of have to wonder whether it actually really even existed at all outside of, you know, artistic inspiration and writing and some people's dreams. Um, and that, you know, I was going to mention earlier, you know, the one city that I've been to where you kind of get a tangible sense of this actually having been a thing is Prague, right? But even then it's, it's kind of like, well, what was this thing and was it ever even allowed to fully manifest in reality? Are we maybe over romanticizing something that wasn't there? I think, you know, it's evolved with well, Western esotericism evolved into various philosophies you know there's people like ken wilbur etc sure. um, who are carrying on some of these same ideas but really it doesn't have the sort of practices or practical meditation applications uh that buddhism does which i think is sort of missing it's this way to um you know, get in touch to your, with your subconscious by yourself. So you don't think that, for instance, the, the, the Golden Dawn counts for that or all the stuff of Western magic? Yeah, I, I could never get into Western magic. You know, it was so so much into the ritual and the costumes and, you know, the naming and, <laughs> yeah. and the hierarchy. It, it always sort of um, put me off. So the, I never got into any of the sort of practices because they seem to be most around ceremonial magic not about any personal you know in-depth uh practice you could do by yourself yes i will agree and disagree and i i i i teach magic for i teach magic for a living so okay I, uh, well excuse my ignorance <laughs> you know? well i'm only hoping to share my enthusiasm in the, in yeah. the sense that um there the 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 masonic level of it and the outer ceremonial level of it is very pompous and silly in in my opinion. Um, it, it, you know, it is very like a theater kid type approach to things. But you know, people love dressing up. Uh, certain people do. The the interior practices though uh, are, are very much present and are. I think there's a sense. There was always a sense within those kind of Rosicrucian Masonic or hermetic orders, which are all kind of, in my opinion, a continuum of the same thing, that you would kind of do these temple initiations that were Masonic style, but that that was just to, I think, you know, honestly, I think in the exact same way that you were just talking about with these kind of Tibetan mandalas of buildings, that these were outer 
enactments of interior processes you were then meant to undertake yourself. And in, in my, my experience, the Western tradition is full of those interior methods, a lot of which are borrowed from Buddhism and Hinduism, like uh, yoga and, and things like this, yeah. but, but also a lot of which are, are unique. And so I think that in my experience, that's kind of the closest we have to something comparable, although it's not as it's not as beautiful. I don't think it's not as perhaps um, uh, sophisticated in some ways. It doesn't have the continuity of practice, but however, it's ours. So it is full of symbols that resonate with Western people like alchemy or like the Arthurian legends or Masonic symbolism or European history or Egyptian, yeah. things like this. So I have to give my uh, vote of confidence for it. But it's certainly a confusing mess, I will grant you. Yeah, I, I think uh, it doesn't have this one monolithic institution that Buddhism does. I mean, there's different schools, right? But uh, they basically have similar practices. Yeah. So yeah, to follow it's tough. And that's why, you know, it sort of left me off. Um, or I don't see it as the things I like, I don't see as magic. I th think it's just a, just a great practice, a great meditation okay. practice. Yeah, it would um, be it would be great if I mean you mentioned Ken Wilber. You know, one of the things that I've tried to do in my career is it would be great if I mean, look, like Western magic has always been an outsider pursuit. It's always been a countercultural pursuit, and and a big part of that was I think the Catholic Church, and we're, we're kind of left with the um, shadow of that. But I think it would be great if it could be perceived in the way you were just describing in the same way that Buddhism, for instance, in, in, in America now is perceived as not scary or spooky in any way. Um, you know, even if it actually is like you were saying, full of kind of terrifying stuff. Um, it would be great if the, the, the Western tradition could be seen more in that light, perhaps. Yeah, it's, it's it's hard to parse. There's you know, it all got split apart because of the church, like you said, et cetera. And you know, nowadays like it's just up to the individual to, you know, you know, mix and match and find things that resonate with them, um, you know, for your own growth. And which I think is probably um for the best, the way to do it, because yeah. there are so many ways in and you have to everyone's so very different and different things are going to be more meaningful people than the other. So people just like meditation. Uh, ritual is good. You know, um, the, the, the chanting, they, they do induce different psychological states um, that are very helpful. So, but like some people aren't in the ritual and some people are. So uh, yeah, it, it takes a lot of work. Well, it all takes a lot of work. Sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I, I just feel like I mean, what the Western tradition, it perhaps, I mean, maybe to put it charitably, just exists. It seems to me in this kind of liminal state where it kind of half exists and half doesn't. And maybe there's something to that. Maybe that's actually quite important for it to be like that, um, where it is kind of an invisible college that manifests in certain ways where you can see it, but not all the way, and it's only half formed. And, you know, at the same time, you want there to be 
I mean, like, like for me, it's like I want to go to Prague and find that there's, it's like Dharamsala, you know, there's a living tradition there, that this always existed, that it wasn't just in my head. Yeah. Uh, and you kind of only get the hint that something existed. You get, uh, you get a, a pointers in certain directions. You get kind of like the, the shadow or the footprint of something that may or may not be there. But I think maybe there's a lesson in that too, in the, in the sense that, you know, you have to make it real in your own life. Yeah, you have to personalize it um, and, you know, find your own path through all of it. Definitely. So on that note, I mean, I'm, what is your, what is your own path been like working on, on these books and, and these zines? I mean, have, has your opinion about some of these traditions or just about kind of reality in general changed over the course of your artistic work? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, that's why you do them. I mean, you don't paint a painting if you know what it's going to be. <laughs> you know, because it's done in your mind. Why Why even, you know, do it? Um, so, you know, writing, uh, writing these scenes and, and the book has, you know, you have to, I have a question in my mind. I have... You know, I'll have an idea or something I read which inspired me, but and I want to write about it. And, and I realize that I really don't know Jack. So it leads me to read more and investigate and learn. So, you know, each time I write, it's a great learning experience and I get to go deeper. And, and it, it takes me places I wouldn't maybe wouldn't normally go. Um, it's just like reading books. I mean, you, you go to the bibliography and that takes you to the next one, to the next one um, to try and answer, you know, a question you might have or, you know, just open up a whole nother field of inquiry. Um, so they've been, uh, you know, they're a great learning experience for me is also it's, you know, personally, it's sort of a mnemonic device because I can't remember all these interesting facts and and different things. So to write them down and draw pictures of them um, helps me to integrate those ideas and remember them and, and be part of them. So uh, it's, you know, they are an expression in the end, yes, but they're, they're sort of a, a tool, a learning tool for me when I do them. That was simple, like a memory palace. Uh, very much so, yes. Mm. You have a YouTube online where you have, which is great, and you have a quote in that, which is, we create meaning by combining our past experiences with our present reality. And I thought that was really great. Is that, do you still feel that that's true? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, you know, a meaning doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, meaning happens by association uh, with things. Say if you, you, have a, you, you have a meal, you eat, you know, could be good, could be bad, but it's sort of meaningless. It's a meal, but it can be meaningful if you start to remember, you know, other places you've had this sort of food or people you've had them with, um, other experiences you had, and then it makes it meaningful. I don't know if that's the best example. Definitely. Well, let me ask you this. So what do you, well, okay. I just, as a general point of curiosity, what are you working on now? What do you have coming up? And are there things that you still want to explore? Like, are, are there other, do you, do you feel like you've kind of explored the traditions and areas you want to, or are there other things that you want to branch out into? Gosh, yes. There's, everything's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> right now, I, uh, 
I'm doing a memoir. So it's sort of sort of an autobiography, which has been great to kind of, you know, put your life in some sort of made up order and put a positive slant on it. So, <laughs> um, and that's also in a way that so I can put down what, what are my sources for what I, I know, what I'm interested in, my experience that I, I've had. So that's, it's been a learning experience in itself um, to do that. So, you know, it's, I guess it's a way of going deeper into myself was in, in writing this and then just, you know, practicing some of the things I've learned and, you know, seeing what's in my subconscious. So do you feel like you're, you're exploring yourself as a memory palace or a, a, a structure? In a way. Yeah, it's been useful. I've been to hypnotists a few times and huh. try and learn self-hypnosis along with meditation. I, I use both of them. You know, what, what's your experience with that been like? Uh, well, all over the map, but I've had some really wonderful experiences um, with it um, and come up with some, you know, very strange uh, visions, you know, also from dreams. Um, but, yeah, some hypnotists are better than others. You know, I had one old guy recommended it to me, and I asked him, you know, te- I, I was told you can teach me self-hypnosis. And he sort of forgot about that. And, you know, every, every week he would sink back to his normal, um, you know, business as usual of asking people about their workday. Because I think that was how they make most of their money is people bitching about <laughs> b- b- bitching about their day, which is yeah. mostly about work. Yeah. So <laughs> I had to keep getting them off of that and go take me under. But uh, he finally did. And I had this amazing experience of uh, when I was nine months old, I, I uh, my parents were bring my father was a carpenter. He brought in this big wooden hutch and he left the back door open in this two story Chicago apartment. And I was nine months old and I, I left, I crawled outside and left off the balcony and landed on my head. Oh, the old lady next door saw me. She screamed, you know, uh, somehow I was fine. Um, but anyway, in this later with this hypnotist, uh, and I didn't even ask for this. It just came up, but he took me under and I had this experience of being in that kitchen again and being hugged by my father. And it was so overwhelming. You know, it was just this feeling of overwhelming joy from him. It was very emotional where I got. And I was this baby he was hugging. And then my mother took me in her arms and there was just this, overwhelming, you know, feeling of love, just expansive. I've never experienced anything like that again. So I guess, well, hopefully there was some Jungian integration going on there, but uh, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty incredible imprint. Yeah. Why don't we, why don't we wrap it up for now? That was a wonderful interview and, and, well, thanks, um, Jason. You were great. Thank you yeah. very much for for talking to me. Where where can people find out about your work? And oh, my stare. my dog. My, speaking of carpentry, my dog just knocked over this super heavy soundboard and tried to kill me. Scared Charlie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at the end now, I I can pitch my website. Yes, yes, please. Yeah, tell us where to find your your work and and your books and anything that you have upcoming as well. Okay. Um, 
Well, the, the website's fun, www.lostwonder.org. Um, here, uh, you can take an interactive tour of the museum, um, which is fun, which goes through different parts of alchemy, like I was mentioning. Uh, and there's lots of things to click and sounds happen. I mean, it's basically simple. It's not really a game, but that's sort of fun. And then, you know, going to the folio section, uh, I have a lot of the paper models I was talking about. They're also animated and interactive, so you can play with them. And you can also, uh, you can buy my book there and also see the other folios and uh, which will be chapters to the next book. Excellent. And that, and that has, uh, where I dress, uh, I go a lot deeper than, than the first book. I go into specific things in history. Um, and it's fun. Excellent. And I'm guessing Museum of Lost Wonder is on Amazon. And I think you had, the, you, you had a sequel to that, right? There's a second uh, one? Uh, not yet. No, you're still working on it? Yeah, I have that, all the chapters, the but I got to find the publisher. Well, I'm I'm sure that'll go great. I mean, the wiser edition of Lost Wonder is is phenomenal, and I, I definitely recommend it to everyone listening. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that, and um, thank you again for for being on the show. And Jason, it's been great. It's been fascinating. I've learned a lot. Um, thanks for having me. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'll talk to you again later. I hope. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, the world's greatest and premier school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where the Western and Eastern traditions will be unfurled before your eyes, like the scrolls of ancient wisdom before Dr. Strange and the powers of the cosmos will be yours to unlock. All right. See you there.